Now I'm going to go ahead and admit something kind of weird. I've actually talked about this before if you paid attention. I don't blame you if you haven't, because I know not everyone catches my streams, but I have seen this film the most of the Phase 3 ones. Now that's mostly by coincidence. I was stuck on a very long, very uncomfortable flight. I don't know about you guys, did you know that they're, like, they actually literally shrink the amount of space you get in airlines now, at least in Delta? I'm not even joking. Like, basically, they moved every seat a couple inches closer to each other so they could squeeze another row in there. I'm not even making this up. You could see the, if you look down, you could see the, where the, the seats used to be. Which means you're just in here like this. And I have a little bit of claustrophobia. Not a lot. It's not a big deal. But I started having legitimate panic attacks. No joke. On that flight. And that was basically cross-country. I was going to Vegas to visit my folks. So, um... Yeah. And I know you were thinking, Lord, why are you bringing this up? Well, this was also on a plane which had the TV screen built into the back of the seat, which was a new thing for me. I haven't flown in a while. I'm like, okay, beep, 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 you know, let's, let's see what we got. And they had several things to do, and all of them were awful and boring and dumb and stupid, but they had some free movies to watch. And one of those movies was Ant-Man and the Wasp, a.k.a. Ant-Man 2. And I'm like, okay, I, like, I remember liking that film. And it helped me to relax, obviously, and to focus on something other than, you know, I'm, I'm in a sardine can slammed in here in a lot of pain, taking, you know, pain, literally just taking pain pills to get through this. So I have to admit, that probably kind of biased me towards the film. I also watched it twice on that same flight because, no, it was a long flight. <laughs> But I bring this up, though, because it wasn't until the second viewing I was like, wow, this is this is actually a really good film. Like, if you watch my discussion stream after the first viewing, I was like, yeah, this is good stuff. Like, it's weird how well-written and well-produced and well-designed this is. And on my second and third viewings, I was like, this is really good. And then I saw it again at home, and this is now my fifth viewing of this film, which probably doesn't sound like a lot. But that makes it four more times, well, three more times than any of the other films on this list. Every other film on this list I've only watched twice. Once in the theaters, and once for this Rumination series. That's it. <laughs> and as I was thinking about it, it was one of the first things I knew I wanted to talk about was how much this film just kind of tetris for me. It just fit perfectly right in there. And I was like, yes, this is such an awesome film. I have gone on record saying it's my favorite MCU film. And upon repeat viewing, I think I may have to repeat that to say that this is still my favorite film in the MCU. And I have a theory as to why. It's wholesome. I'm going to discuss some of the specifics of how and why it is wholesome as we go through it. And when I say wholesome, I don't mean light. I don't mean, like, like Guardians of the Galaxy 2, that's light. That's comical. Thor Ragnarok, that's light. This isn't light. This is, it's different. It's a different tone, and it distinguishes it. But as an addendum, you'll notice there's no villainous plot, really. Point to me another MCU film where there's no big bad. There's no major villain. There's no, I am going to destroy you or kill this or conquer that or whatever. The main plot of this film is entirely focused around the, well, you know, rescuing Janet, obviously, but helping people. It's a superhero film about helping people, not defeating bad guys. 
And it is, in my opinion, the only MCU film that is about helping people and not defeating bad guys. Now, another one actually comes close, but just wasn't quite as well constructed. But overall, this one really shines for me because of that fact. So, yeah, I think that's really why it clicks with me so well. I'm actually kind of curious if this would be true in the future. Now, it probably helps that we have, let's see, we have Evangeline Lilly, who's amazing, Michael Pena, who is amazing, and Paul Rudd, who is amazing, in addition to a massive cast of awesome people who all just really nail their roles. I mean, it's a good film regardless of the tonality, but I think that tonality is what pushes it that one little extra inch in front of the others for me. Anywho, <clears throat> so, this is when... Uh, when we get to see, so they have a backstory. And the backstory is there for those of you who don't remember the first film or don't really, you know, didn't actually see it or don't care or forgot or whatever. And it also fills in more of the blanks, more of the details. It also immediately sets the tone. This is a film about rescuing someone, not defeating someone, which I already mentioned. We then immediately cut to Scott and his daughter, which, again, wholesome. It's just, oh, every time I see that, I just, I want to gush, you know? That is so cool, because, I mean, at first you want to make fun of it, right? It's like, oh, come on, he does all this just for his kid. But on the other hand, he's under house arrest, and he's doing okay financially, so he can afford to spend both the time and the money in setting up a, you know, a cardboard maze and, a, and the, the, the slide and all of that stuff, right? Just so she can have fun while she's over there for the weekend. Th that's really awesome. And then we cut to her. Now, she's played by Abby Ryder Fortson, which I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, she was the same actress in the first film. I didn't really realize until I rewatched Ant-Man 1, which I did uh, for, the, for the Rumination series not too long ago, that she wasn't all that interesting in the first film. In this film, which is admittedly several years later, so obviously you know, as an actress she's gotten better, she does a lot better job. She comes across as way more interesting and more, uh, what's a good word, adorable. She is absolutely adorable in this film. And, of course, Paul Rudd is, is Paul Rudd. He's a national treasure, so, of course, he is amazing. <laughs> I have a quick note here. But before we get to that, I want to talk about Wu. So I mentioned there's no big bad. Now, I stand by that. There is no major villain for this. What we have instead is a series of rotating antagonists. We have Wu and the FBI in general. We have Sonny and his little organization and Norman Osborn. I'll get to that in a minute. And then we have uh, Ghost and Bill. <laughs> There's so many names to keep track of here, forgive me. And those, all of those just kind of rotate in and out of the antagonist slot. Only one of those is a legitimately unpleasant person, and even that person's like a Pokemon villain. Again, I'll get to him in a minute. But that helps to kind of distinguish them because each of them is after a different thing. Woo, there's no malice there. He's just a dork, and he is. He is a total dork, but in a strangely understandable way because he's not really a jerk. He kind of comes across as one because he's like, I just really need this win for my career. So he doesn't mind, you know, trying to catch Scott, like, ha ha, I've caught you. But when Scott actually goes through it, he's like, well, okay, sure. You want to go grab dinner maybe or something? I mean... Just something, you know. I would have. <laughs> Anyways. 
So, yeah, and uh, he also gives all the exposition for those of you who don't remember Civil War, which was a while ago at this point, and you know, I can forgive you. And he gives this whole thing about the Sokovia Accords, which is the first thing I have to talk about. Like, first analysis discussion part here. This is the ground-level view of exactly how messed up the Sokovia Accords are, because it ruins the lives of two groups of people for no good reason. Now, what he did with the, you know, unauthorized attack and blah, 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 that's eh, a little debatable. I always like to think that Stark was partially responsible for helping him to get a lessened sentence, to get house arrest rather than, you know, being locked up on the raft, for God's sakes. That's just my opinion. I don't have anything to back that whatsoever. But I also got to say, what they do to the Pims, that's messed up. They are fugitives because of the fact that they provided technology that was used for the other side unknowingly. Now, you might be thinking, what's messed up about that, Lore? It means the government has a legal method of obtaining and... I'm trying to think of it. They have a legal way of robbing people. There we go. Let's just put it that way. Think about it. They have a legal method, thanks to the Sokovia Accords, to reach out and take Pym's assets and all his tech and, and do whatever the hell they want with it, because now that is officially government property. Tell me that's not messed up. So that's what I mean when we see kind of the impacts, the, the ripples of the Sokovia Accords. Obviously the impact on, you know, Paul and, or not Paul, Paul's the actor's name, Scott's life is pretty obvious. But we also see the impact on how this is affecting politics going forward. And we start to see one of the reasons why the Sokovia Accords really were a terrible idea from the beginning. I've actually been talking about that for a while. In fact, I'm pretty sure I mentioned that back in Civil War. But yeah, no, this, this was always a mess, and it was always going to be a mess. And you know what's funny is, it occurs to me now, they probably should have found a country that wasn't willing to sign the Accords and just kind of went there and, you know, backed them, have one country backing the superheroes. So only one country in the world has superheroes. The other countries have the financial power and the economic might be. You know what they don't have? Superheroes. So we'd have kind of a weird balancing point, and we'd start a new Cold War, and then Thanos would have invaded. None of it even matters. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. I also want to point out that nobody is freaking out about giant spaceships entering Earth's orbit over Wakanda or New York and devastating things. That's important. Obviously, this happens before Infinity War. But what we see is, thanks to the construction of it, this happens a decent chunk before Infinity War. In other words, the events of the film happen, and then insert amount of time passes, we don't actually know, and then they're ready to experiment. It's enough time to put the thing in the van, and to have a regular interaction with Ghost, or Ava, excuse me, and just all that fun stuff, right? And, and then... So, yeah. Anyways, getting back to the point. So then we see Paxton and Maggie. I had to look up their names, admittedly, but that's the uh, the stepfather and the mother of the daughter. They had a bit. They have a bit role in this film, and it's a damn shame because every scene they're in is actually awesome. Her coming off as just this is horrible. What the government's doing? They're not allowed to do this. Actually, they are. No, they they can't. This can't be right. Actually, it is. Now that's done for humorous sake, but it kind of helps to highlight the point. The only thing that prevents you from doing something is whether it is legal or not. And that's exactly what they're doing, is they are strong-arming people 
in a big way because Sokovia Accords. I actually had a theory for a long time that, as weird as this may sound, if Thanos had not invaded, we might be heading, in, in the MCU, we might have been heading to a straight-up dystopia state, and not that far off. Anyways, but they have so... That's all dark, horrible stuff. They're so loving. They they embrace him. They literally embrace him. He comes in and brings him in. I bring him in for the hug. I'm so proud of you. This is why I say this word wholesome. There is something just wonderfully good about the tone, about the undercurrent of this film. And I, I think that's one of the reasons it resonates with me so well. How easy would it have been in any other film for them to be like, you know, like, like for the old cop guy, for, for uh, Paxton to be like, you know, I'm so disappointed in you. You actually went to Germany and you broke the law and you're a criminal now. I don't want to associate with you. And her being like, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't want, you know, I don't want Cassie to, to interact with you anymore. And him not being able to see his daughter. There are so many ways they could have gone drama with this, right? How many shows and books and movies in real life have you seen that would have gone that way? But instead, they're there for him. They're backing him. They're supporting him. And that's just awesome. Excuse me for gushing. But we do establish our first... I need something to keep track of. Here we go, here we go. You can't see these, can you? They're green. Um, we establish our first... It's my floss. Our first ticking clock. Three days until the, the ankle comes off. This also gives us a timeline for the film. This film occurs across three days, not counting the post-credits, or mid-credits, excuse me. So, ticking clock number one. Okay. So, we have a bit of a montage. Why doesn't he just play World of Warcraft? <laughs> I mean, I know, I know. It's just, God, you'd think that being locked in the house all day would be a terrible thing. Oh, God, what am I doing with my life? I'm kidding. I wouldn't be locked up in the house all day if I had a choice on the matter. I just work. So, you know, it's it's like spending half your day at the, or more than half your day at the office. You, you wouldn't be there if you didn't have a choice, right? I'm not complaining about my job. It's just I get it. Um, so, I like, I like how, you know, he, they have this whole montage of him trying to figure out how to deal with his life and all the things he's been doing, you know, new skills, Helping to manage the business from home. Basically, the consultant. All makes sense. And uh, then, he has his first entanglement dream. And he is then kidnapped. Well, no, he calls. Realizes he probably shouldn't. Screws it up. Whatever. Gets kidnapped. That's nice. Um, I, uh, I love how much he freaks out. I can't be here. I can't be here. Think about how hard he's worked for two years. That is a long time to be under house arrest, by the way. I mean, especially since he did nothing wrong. But considering the fact that he's, he's having to deal with this, I mean, of course he's going to freak out. they got three days left or two days at this point. So, yeah, I don't blame him. But this brings us to ticking clock number two. The whole reason they don't just leave him home while they deal with stuff is because they want to get this dealt with now because the entanglement between Janet and him is temporary, ticking clock number two. So, <clears throat> they have the micro-building. If you pay attention, and I was watching this time around, you can see in, in the, when they're actually walking in, it's not actually connected to the ground. Nice touch, because it's on a, par a parking lot, so that actually makes perfect sense. And you can tell it's a, it's a building that was basically crafted small and then enlarged. Like, there's even Duracells that are actually powering the thing. This brings me to uh, my next point. 
Why are they so upset with Scott? I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on because it's all his fault, but it's kind of not. <laughs> Why? Why? They act like he is some big, horrible person who has ruined their lives. When what he did was he tried to do right and ended up getting caught, and that ended up having backlash on them because of a corrupt government, which I've already detailed earlier. I can understand being a little upset, but they treat him like he's just the worst. And every time I watch this, it bothers me a little bit how much they try to ostracize him, because screw you, even though both of them obviously do care about him, and it's obvious he cares about them in return. Both in terms of the obvious romance interest with regards to uh, Hope, but also the fact that he has a decent amount of respect for Pym himself. <sighs> Whatever. I don't know. I got nothing. But then that leads to Sony Birch. <laughs> <laughs> so he's the closest thing to an actual villain this film he's the only one who isn't who, who is evil now he's not fully evil he's just greedy and stupid and he's probably one of the best examples of a Krennic character I've ever seen in the MCU he really does have no idea how tiny and insignificant he is this guy is ten steps below the kingpin and the kingpin isn't exactly that big of the MCU either. So this guy, he's just... What are you doing, buddy? Why are you even here? And it's actually... It's not a bad thing, though. They do a good job of it. They do a good job of a pathetic villain. And it fits the tone of the wholesome work. Because you don't want a real villain for a wholesome work. Because then they'd be a real villain. Thanos, or any of the, the, the children of Thanos, wouldn't fit here at all, to use a direct comparison. Or Hela, for example. No, no, no. You need someone whose biggest threat is the fact that he's got a couple of guys with guns who he's willing to, you know, try and play hardball by saying, I'm totally going to you know, take your money but not, not, but not give you your atom. It's as bad as he gets. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Quick note. Uh, there was a tweet comment by one of the writers, and I don't know how much this is canon, and it, the the fact is, it's probably not canon, or at least it wasn't at the time canon, specifically because of the fact that the Spider-Man status in the MCU has, is continues to remain in the air. Like, as of this point, they've signed on for two more films, so that's something. But, you know, at the time, obviously they don't want to plan anything long-term with Spider-Man people, because you know, the Spider-Man thing is just Sony and blah, blah, blah. But... The original intent by the writer was the guy, the, the, the dangerous people he's talking about, that's Norman Osborn. Norman Osborn. So, puts some interesting thought into perspective, doesn't it? And it helps to show how pathetic Sonny is, because he's, he's, no, he's no Osborn. This then leads to the establisher. All these superhero films have to have an establisher for any new characters. And remember, Hope is new as the Wasp. So she kicks ass and takes names because she's really good at what she does. She comes across as someone who is so casually on top of things at all times, which I'm okay with, because not only was she that way in the first film, but you can tell this is someone who's very used to this. So yeah, she's just completely on top of it. It also makes a nice contrast to Scott. Oh, don't mistake me, he's good at what he does, but his style is more flailing than hers. So, contrast. This then leads to the introduction of Ghost cute. So Ghost shows up, and um, actually, before I talk about Ghost, I want to say two other things really quick. First, 
She mops the, uh, Hope mops the floor with Sonny's goons. Of course she does. There are a bunch of random guys in a restaurant, for God's sakes. But also, we see a bit of the shrinking, expanding tech, which is a bit of a teaser for what's going to happen during the finale. Second thing I want to talk about is as she's leaving, she still pays him. That's actually smart. You don't want someone like that with an additional grudge to come after you in the future. So, here's your money. Leave us alone. Okay. So then Ghost shows up, and she has the phasing. Can I just say I love the special effects on the phasing tech, on the, on the multi-dimensional thing? It's not even anything fancy, really. It's just they show her at multiple stages of where she's moving and how she's moving, and then they kind of blend them together as she's going. It, it, it's just an absolutely awesome effect. And, of course, Ghost is sufficiently dangerous to require Scott to get involved alongside Hope, so, you know, there's that. <clears throat> so this then leads to... Actually, before I go any further, um, I want to talk about Hannah... Oh, God, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Hannah John Cammon, I hope. She's actually a pretty good actress. She nails it in this film. Everyone nails it in this film. But i it's funny because she's already kind of starting to circle geek films in general. She was in Star Wars Episode Seven, and she was in Ready Player One. And there are words that she's going to start you know, expanding more into that in the future. And I hope we do see more of her because she's a good actress. But anyways, <clears throat> so. Then Dan, Kurt, and Luis show up for basically the first time. And they're... Oh, what's, what's a good word? They're awesome. That's a good word for it. We also see... That she, I just... I'm sorry. There are so many moments. As with so many of the joking films, I don't have much to say about it, but I have to smile at the at the riffing back and forth. Why, why is this my desk? This desk is pathetic. Why are, you, why are you springing for this fancy breakfast food? We don't have money for that. That just represents the red that the company's in. Okay, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So they get a little bit of help, and they decide to go talk to this guy. And there's this wonderful bit where uh, Hank is like, nah, we shouldn't go talk to him. Can I just say something real quick? Hank probably undergoes the most su substantial character arc in this film. No, seriously. He's still basically a prick at the beginning, and still egotistical. And that's important to note, because remember, they handed over a bag of hundreds of dollars of bills over to the, uh, over to Sonny in order to buy the part, and they've been doing this repeatedly to build this thing. Now, I know what you're saying. Lord, why is that relevant? It means be, he still has enough assets on hand that despite their, oh, we've been so, you know, it's been so horrible being on the run, they still have money to burn liquid on hand. And he hasn't exactly been in what I would call a desperate situation. Now, that's important. Because during the office scene, we see the first real hint of that. He, he's given the offer to go talk to Bill, played by uh, Lawrence Fishburne. And his response is, ah, I don't know. And it's sort of a, you know, I mean, that's just, I don't like him and he doesn't like me. Which is what we in business like to call a small reason not to talk to someone. If the stakes are real, you should, it's, okay, look, I know we don't like each other, but I really need your help. Right? But instead he's like, nah. And it is Scott who has to jump up and say, dude, I am here. I am risking my future and, and 30 years of, of prison time just to help you with this. Can we frickin' go and talk to this guy? Because Scott understands desperate. I want you to keep that in mind for later, too. So they go, and uh, Scott and Foster, that's his name, Bill Foster, they, they actually bond a little bit as they're talking about it. I'm like, oh, man, no, I, I grew a little bit. Oh, I was so exhausted afterwards. It was, it was great, though. It was awesome. Oh. And then, of course, Hope 
desperately is like, you know, I, I just want to find my mother, please. Now, of course, obviously he already knows where things are, and he's probably already looking in this direction, but he, he gives them an idea. And it's the first sign of the fact that he's already having not only second thoughts, but he's not a bad guy. Because as I said earlier, no, no real villains, right? He just, he's just like, all right, all right, sure, here, I'll, I'll help out, I'll help out. This then leads to a funny scene. See, they are spotted. And people are like, oh, we saw Hank Pym on campus. Oh, my God, why did they see them? Maybe because their disguises were awful. Scott mentioned that. Of course, Scott would know quite a bit about not wanting to be seen. So, then we have an obstacle to overcome. The most terrible obstacle of all. <sighs> Grade school. <clears throat> okay, I, I'm, I'm joking, obviously. But I do want to point this out because, again... This is probably the simplest way to compare and contrast this film to most of the rest of the MCU, but especially something like Infinity War, which we just finished. Think about this for a moment, really. What kind of obstacles do they have to overcome in Infinity War? Armies bent on ripping us to shreds and eating us. People who are here trying to murder us. Thanos who is trying to murder us. Thanos who is trying to destroy us. Like, you get the general gist, right? What's the obstacle in this film? not being caught while sneaking through a school to get a trophy back. That comparison says everything I need to about the tone of this film. It's more of an adventure. An adventure! Rather than an epic. Sorry, my, my foot itches. Anyways. <clears throat> so. They, of course, were set up. And I just, I want to once again praise the actress who plays Ava. Uh, Hannah John Kamen. I, I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong. She, oh my God, <laughs> she gets across that feeling, and I'm going to talk more about this later, but you can tell that she does a good job of portraying someone who is always in pain. She's much nicer to Scott, overall, which makes sense, because she has nothing against him, and she's not an evil person. She is far ruder and brusker to Hank. And then she gives her backstory. Now, we can infer things here. She talks about how, you know, what's his face? Elias was kicked out. And then she worked with S.H.I.E.L.D. under promises of being cured. Given the context and the history, I think we could fairly say what happened there. Hydra was actually working with Elias, and that's why he was kicked out, as per what Hank mentions. And that leads to, you know, the him deciding to go ahead and go off and do his own thing. Now, I'm just thinking, why is that necessarily a connection? Where do you think he got the resources and the funding to try and build his own thing on the side? Second point. When she is discovered, they bring her into <clears throat> S.H.I.E.L.D. and then turn her into an assassin. Now, who does that sound more to you like? Now, I know S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't exactly all you know clean and, and wonderful, but that sounds very Hydra. Especially the whole, oh, we'll definitely cure you. We have no intention of curing you thing. I've heard theories for some time that Hydra actually continued experimenting on her, which basically made her worse, so that she would be a better operative. Now, this does help to add some sympathy to her character. At worst, she is a type 2 villain here. I would actually argue very strongly she's not a villain at all. I'll talk more about why later, but you can kind of get the idea that she's just not really into this. We also, by the way, get our third, I think. Are we up to three or four? Hang on. Let me check my notes. We're up to three. We're up to three. We're up to our third ticking clock. Ava, 
only has a few days left before she will finally uh, disentangle and just completely disintegrate. You know, kind of like what was supposed to happen to B. Parker over in the Spider-Verse. Yeah, so. <clears throat> Ticking clock number three. <sighs> then the phone call scene happens. I don't know what to add to that one. But I also want to mention, Hank says, Ava, I want to help you. Now, that's an interesting point, because that's probably the first time he's really tried to reach out to someone. Now, they deny him that, and they say, no, you're going to do this, and we're going to hold you hostage, and blah, blah, blah. But I just want to point out that Hank and Hope did actually try to be polite and diplomatic before they tricked them into letting them out. So, this then leads to being like, okay, we got to do this, we got to do this. I'm going to share a thought here. I've actually talked about this thought before, but not actually all that often. Uh, sometimes in real life and in fiction, uh, there's person A and there's person B, right? Bob and Bobette, to be simple. Now, Bob um, gets destroyed from reality, or goes to jail, or uh, ends up separated, or is a POW, or something, right? Is separated from Bobette for a substantial period of time. Now, Bob was very close to Bobette. doesn't matter how, you know, friendship... Um, you know, romantic relationship, professional, uh, maybe actually familial. You know, it doesn't matter. Bob then comes back from this long period of time away and basically has built this idealized form of Bobette in their mind in order to cope, in order to help them get through the hard times. Bobette, meanwhile, has had however many years of a completely normal life, and they've just moved on. They're like, who are you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you. And thus we can see that discrepancy and the disparity, disparate disparate discrepancy, we'll go with that, between the two. And that can cause issues. <laughs> Yet what's interesting is every now and again you see something where both Bob and Bobette are both removed from each other in a similar way. In that case, both of them hold on to an idealized version of the other to keep going. This actually happened in StarCraft II with James Raynor and Sarah Kerrigan, for example. And this is what happens with Hope and with Janet. Janet has been holding on to her memories and thoughts of her daughter all this time, and Hope... And I love how it's Scott who tells her that. It's like, look, this... This is... this is, Trust me, she is holding on because of you, because she... You are what's helping her to keep going. Trust me on this one. He should know. So, this then leads to ticking clock number four. This is just getting funny at this point. Ticking clock number four is a lot more mundane. They have a meeting in the morning, and so they need to get deal with this problem with the, the Hankerman account or whatever it is in order to be able to deal with that. Now, I'll talk more about that in a minute. But Sonny comes in and knows about the undercarriage thing when he comes to interrogate them. And I have two things to say about this scene. First, why does he know so much about the nature of car maintenance in an undercarriage? Now, real question. I have an answer in my own head, which I'd like to share with you because it makes me laugh. I like to think that he was actually a car washer or used car... You know, someone so pedantically pathetic because that just fits his personality and character so much, doesn't it? And that's why he would know about it. Second thing I have to say about the scene is, well, I mentioned before that this is a completely different tone. The wholesome thing. This is probably my second biggest example of that, other than the obvious no-villains thing. Sonny is the closest thing to a villain this film has. 
He is just out for greed, right? Well, he comes into this room, and rather than doing any of the really horrible, awful things he could have done to these people to get them to talk, he pulls out truth serum. He could have just started slicing off his fingers, or he could have tortured them, or he could have um, chopped off the guy's head and put it into a dryer, to quote from Spider-Man. You know, there's all sorts of really, really messed up things he could have done to try and force these people to talk. No, he pulls out just a chemical. He's like, here, this is going to make you talk. Because it's that kind of film. Because those other things wouldn't fit here at all. And because he's not that kind of villain. Evil? Eh, yeah. But he's, he's not that, right? This, of course, uh, leads... Speaking of not evil, this is actually funny. Uh, this leads to a quick scene before the serum takes effect where they cut to uh, Bill and Ava. And Ava's like, fine, I'll go get the girl. And Bill's like, no. No, you won't. You lay one finger on that girl, and I will not help you anymore. It's interesting, because it kind of shows how he is continuing to shift, and how she is desperate. Because it's not like she wants to go after the girl. She accepts it. Okay, fine. We'll get, we'll get another way. Sure, whatever. Then what follows is the best scene in the entire film. Okay, so I was thinking, oh my god, I was just so alone. Hey, my name's Luis, nice to meet you. Hey, it's so good. We're going to be friends here. Yeah. I, I love, absolutely love Luis, unironically. And just, oh my god, he is so awesome in this film. And I love them repeating this whole gimmick of actors mouth lip-syncing alongside to Luis's kind of rapid-fire style, of an exaggerated style of talking. You know, they, you know, just, oh my god, I have nothing but absolute awesomeness for all of that. <clears throat> Speaking of which, <laughs> I also love the thing, the woods, and everyone's just like, holy crap, because Ghost has just been standing there holding herself steady this whole time, like, come on! Come on! Oh, my God! Anyways. <clears throat> then what follows is a scene which should be funny or awkward and is neither. This is why Paul Rudd is a really, really good actor. Because he then... What that happens is Paul Rudd plays Janet Van Dyne. Straight. And they could have done this scene so many different ways. They could have winked at the camera. They could have made it a joke. You know, they could have made it awkward or silly. No, it is played completely straight. He just plays her, and it is exactly as heartwarming and connecting as it is intended to be. There's a little bit of a joke when he comes out of it, and he's like, but that's it. For the rest of it, and that's just, I'm, I'm sorry for commenting on this, but once again, think about how other films would approach that scene. Think about how other shows or books or whatever would do that. No, they wouldn't do that. I just, I really, really like the, the way they do this film. Anyways, moving on. So then Scott talks about his job. Ah, yes. Said I'd come back to this point. Forgive me for ranting for a moment, but I have a feeling that uh, Mr. Pym hasn't had to deal with the mundane problems of paying the bills for eh, a few decades, at least. And I point that out because um, how many of you out there have, have to deal with paying the bills on a regular basis? I'll go ahead and raise my hand on this one. Like, that's a thing. You have to worry about that. You have to think about that. Make sure the income's coming. Make sure you get your job. It's why a lot of us are so intent on keeping our jobs. Because even if we don't like our jobs, 
that job is what we need to continue to survive, right? And I point that out because Scott talks about how important it is that he nails this next gig so that his company continue to stay afloat. Everyone, and, and, and then both, uh, oh my god, both uh, Hope and Pim, Hank, are just like, oh, whatever, you're so dumb and you've betrayed us. And I'm just sitting here thinking, you two have no idea what this is like, do you? Forgive me for being harsh again, but this is why I pointed out my point earlier. I don't think they have even the tiniest idea, the, the barest scrap, of how important it is to him to do something that seems so unimportant. Oh, yeah, you need the, the... Yes, yes, he does need that deal. Because he needs income so that he can pay the rent. Just, I know that's not something you're used to having to deal with, but it's something the rest of us has to deal with. And so, once again, it irritates me when they're just at him. Granted... It doesn't last long. This is the one and only thing I'm willing to give this film. Both times they get upset at him, it's actually very brief. It's basically one scene, and then they move on from it. It still pisses me off a little bit. So, they get caught, and, you know, Ghost walks up. Do you think Ghost kills the corrupt FBI agent? Just wondering. And <laughs> there's this great bit where Cassie is talking to Scott, who got back in time, of course. It's like, you need a partner. Hmm. I actually find myself wondering, because he does pro he does work better when he's part of a team. That's actually already been proven. So I kind of like the idea of you know him actually teaming up with someone. And Lord knows his daughter's leaning in that direction. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about his daughter in the future, because she's going to have an interesting five years. Anyways, <clears throat> but he says, "All right, screw it. I'm going to go help them," because that's the main point of the film helping people. That is the main point of this film. So he helps them escape, and Luis is just incredibly awesome, as usual. And, um, I mean, only he could sell that joke. And Hank reaches out at this point to, uh, uh, to Foster, to Bill Foster, says, we'll figure something out together. We'll help her, okay? We will save her. I like that. He doesn't have to do that. He is under no obligation. He doesn't give a crap, and it doesn't affect him at all. But you know what? He's still going to do it, because the point of this film is helping people. But we still have to have a big action sequence. So then we have a big action sequence. Now, I don't have much to say about this, but uh, you'll do no you do notice that it's interesting how we've got... So we've got Sonny and his people, Ghost, the good guys, and the FBI. They get involved later. And then we have Hank, who's inside. And all of these people are basically just going all over each other as they move through San Francisco and try to get the various pieces, which is also interesting because they, all of them basically need the same things. They all need the building, they all need the remote, and they all need, well, okay, two of them, two of the aforementioned groups need uh, Janet, who is inside. <laughs> so they're all, it's, it makes it kind of more like a... I don't want to say Looney Tunes. It makes it more adventurous. I don't know what to say about it. It's not. There's not some big doom guy walking through San Francisco trying to kill everyone. It's just, oh, God, you know, it's, it's just an action sequence. Um, I do also have to wonder about Janet seeing the passion of time. Passion? Did I say that word? Passage. Oh, my God. You can tell I'm getting tired. 
I've been working really overtime on getting these done, if that's not obvious. You could tell, why did Janet perceive the passage of time the way she does? Not to spoil, but we know for a fact that he, that is to say, uh, Scott, does not perceive the passage of time in the same way. It's like five hours for him. Now, that being said, she could still have been down there for a while, but nowhere near to the length of time she's talking about. Now, they do reference a time vortex, so maybe that's related. But either way, I just wanted to comment on it, because... Well, she's apparently fine down here. She also has to toss out what is probably the stupidest line in the entire film. Uh, it's changed me being here. Part of it is evolution. Now, okay, stop, stop, stop. That's not what evolution is. You're, you're thinking of the word mutation. <laughs> we are not Pokemon. Okay, moving on, moving on. This, so, so they, they win. You know, they get it. She comes out. Everyone's fine. Ava has completely lost it. All of her action, again, wonderful body language in the actress. She just, she's completely done with all of this. But there's this bit, and I'm not even, I'm not even joking when I say it made me cry. Okay, for those of you not aware, uh, I'm in a lot of pain most of my life. Like, I'm in pain right now. I'm not even joking. Uh, I'm going to have to go and stretch out after I finish this recording because of how much it hurts. It's hard to concentrate right now. That's just, that's just life. And I know I'm not the only one. And that sucks. <laughs> that lots of people have to deal with systemic pain. Uh, repeating pain. There's a term for that. And uh, the actress does a really, really good job of portraying what that feels like. To always be in pain. And the way she says it, it hurts. It hurts all the time. There's just something, oh God, so emotionally and human connecting about that. Now granted, that probably affects me more because of my situation. But still, it's important because it helps to humanize a character who otherwise seems like the supervillain. But she's not. I mean, she has superpowers, and she was kind of an antagonist. But you can see how what we've really been seeing this whole film is a woman getting more and more desperate because of how much it hurts. One of the reasons that torture is a proven bad way to to get information from someone is at a certain pain threshold your everything about who and what you are as a human being is designed to prevent that pain and you will say anything you will make up anything you have to just to make that pain stop right i understand how it feels to be so desperately in pain that you can't even walk when they were taking me to the hospital for the kidney stones, this would have been like five or six years ago at this point. I, I literally was being carried by my sister at the time, just because just I couldn't walk. I couldn't make the nerves work. I was in so much pain. And I'll, I'll be honest, I would have done a lot to stop that pain in that moment. Not anything, but a lot. Now, I'm not just saying this to make you feel bad for me, although I am saying this to make you feel bad for her, but then, then, Janet reaches out and helps to center her, helps to focus her and brings her back and coheses her so the pain goes down. Nothing in the entire world feels like pain relieved. When you've just had pain and it just sits there and it just hurts and it always hurts and you've been dealing with it and living with it and you've become dulled to it but it's been driving you mad and then it's gone. Nothing feels like that. She helps her. 
So then they have to do a quick run around. Bill stays with her. You know, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you do this alone. And uh, Scott, you know, he's finally released from his bondage. You know, he's actually still on parole, but he's no longer on house arrest. And, uh, you know, the whole dinner scene. Wu, the final villain who's defeated, basically. And, of course, they go in wholesome. Life is good. They come in for the hug. Everything's awesome. Business is booming, um, which, as I mentioned earlier, is very important to them, especially now that he's out. He needs a job. Um, yeah, all of that. It's, it's just a really happy, funny, sunny, light ending, which is good because the next thing that happens is they all die when Thanos does this. I gotta go ahead and admit something. That hit us so hard when we were watching this in the theaters because the whole film was just, ah, and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, they're dead. You remember Thanos? Because we do. This, in many ways, helps to further emphasize the crime of Thanos and how insane he really is, how gone he is. That he could do something like this and it affects so many people. We could do a nearly infinite number of stories of people whose lives have been interrupted by the snap. And, of course, it also helps to set the tone. As I said before, up and then down, right? You have to have something light, then something dark, and something light. Now, it was actually supposed to be Captain Marvel next, in the original production order. And then Ant-Man 2 was supposed to happen right before Endgame. I decided not to flip it around this time around, mostly because I wanted to talk about Ant-Man 2 a lot. But we'll see how the tonality shifts when we get to Captain Marvel, which we will see next time. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this one, guys. I'm sorry for, you know, rambling a little bit there. But I, I really, really like this film. I kind of want to watch it again. <laughs> uh, I'll see you next time.